So quality spreads, your compensation for stepping down the credit spectrum and risk is really, it's, it's well above the median as it should be, but it's well below prior credit cycle downturn. So uh, that means there's a lot of optimism built into that number. From our remote offices in the tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. For this episode of our podcast, we present an excerpt from our weekly wrap with Aaron Lyons, our U.S. investment-grade strategist as host, and Glenn Reynolds, our co-founder and head of global strategy as guest. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global collateral markets. Please enjoy the weekly wrap with Aaron Lyons and Glenn Reynolds. Hi, good morning, and welcome to another edition of the weekly wrap. I am Aaron Lyons, and I am the co-head of Ingressment Raid Research at Credit Sites. I'm also the U.S. credit strategist. Glenn Reynolds is joining us today, and not only did Glenn co-found the firm 20 years ago this November, he serves as our global macro strategist, focuses on the high-yield market, covers credits, and he's our resident encyclopedia on all things credit. Good morning, Glenn, and thanks for joining us today. So, Glenn, I wanted to get your thoughts on how to think about this market. You've been through a lot of different cycles and points in time, and I know we're regularly asked, you know, which crisis does this one look like? I guess, how do you respond to that? It's, it's interesting. People are always trying to find common features because they think it can be predictive of how the next market's going to react. But we've really only had four credit cycles in the, in the modern high yield era. It's been, it was three until this one started. So um, at its core, even with all the COVID overlay and the issues around pandemics, that, that kind of makes it unique by itself. Uh, but it, really what it is at its core now, once the COVID kickstarts the, the downturn, which is here, the credit cycle's over, the economic contraction is on, well, the NBER will get around to telling us when it started, but as far as I'm concerned, it started in the middle of March. Uh, and it, we've had plenty of, of past examples of severe fundamental downturns in l- large concentration industries that are critical and high yield, or just generally broadly, like in the late 80s. Uh, in, in the late 80s, we had a whole array of regional crises, and from the oil patch to the housing sector to commercial real estate overbuilds, excess, you know, is the age of Glass-Steagall and you know, excess origination and collapsing broker-dealers. So everyone is quite distinct. But I, the one that makes this one really interesting for credit players, whether they be distressed or be high-yield guys sharpening up their pitch book to get assets under management from pension funds or, or wealth advisors, is it's fundamental in nature. It's, it's a, I call it a price times volume crisis because that's exactly what it is for most industries. The breadth of it is stunning and unprecedented. But analyzing the price times volume factor and how it can dovetail with what actions you can take to plug the gap on your negative cash flow hole because you can't take expenses out fast enough, particularly in high fixed cost industries. It's a game of who can actually borrow, who can survive. It's not about the trend in leverage and the trend of earnings because those are going to be horrific at least through the next couple of quarters on an LTM basis. 2Q20 is going to be the worst. So it it is really uh, all hands on deck across you know probably a, a dozen major issuing industries. And you have to take a look at the, the extent there will be a cash bleed, what can they do about it? For many, it's just simply borrowing. Uh, but that can make all the difference in the world. I mean, we've seen uh, a lot of companies who are IG still. For example, this week, we saw one, if you came with a secured bond, you could get an IG rating and you put a coupon on it that's higher than the nominal long-term return on equity. So for people who are, are really fixated on cash income, uh, there's a lot of opportunity here. And the best opportunities usually come, and that's as you go back across those significant events, uh, and every one of them is was a, I, what I did is I picked dates that were 
right before watershed market events uh, or, or capital markets uh, structural dislocations. And uh, high yield, just on the cash, on cash component and reinvestment, because this assumes reinvestment, for people with a time horizon, has done quite well and stacks up quite well. Uh, just to, to look at more recent periods, such as, you know, there's pretty self-explanatory. You know, it's, it's the Asia crisis, the Euro inception, the NASDAQ peak. I always, and I picked the uh, Friday before the Lehman crisis, 9-11. Uh, uh, you can just put your finger on it, go across the lines and just look up and see how it did versus high quality credit and, and then down versus equities. And it's done pretty damn well. Trump, I would, you know, that's not a partisan comment to say he's an event by himself, but uh, he is. And, uh, you know, from the election, all of a sudden we've had the big swing. Uh, risk assets were crushing it for the last couple of years, uh, despite some temporary time off and things like 4Q18 and a few other waves. But uh, now uh, quality and duration wins and it's about the curve and it's about repricing of risk. So high yields falling down. Uh, but every day is a new day and you get a fresh repricing and fresh series of higher coupons that get reinvested if you are not someone who draws income. If you draw income, uh, the thing that makes high yields so interesting still is, you know, you take the coupon and this is where some of the questions we'll get to later come in. Who needs income first and foremost? That's the reach for yield, but it's also the reach for a cash coupon. And that, that still bodes very well for demand and high yield, despite significant swings in volatility we expect. So. This is very similar to some crisis in volatility and picking your timing. But if you look at this and look across time, the lesson that you usually find at high yield is the absolute best time to get involved, to add, and to take a little extra risk uh, is when the pricing is being distorted by factors beyond uh, refinancing risk, default risk, where you're getting paid extra for illiquidity. And we saw that in spades in March in dramatic fashion. With this big rally, a lot has been taken out of the equation. Uh, but you're going to get a fresh bite at the apple because from here we see a lot more action ahead. But I'll stop on that one. The worst default cycle we ever had was 14.6%, and that was, you know, actually after the downturn was over. That and that for the worst means 85 didn't uh, on that rolling basis. So there's, there's most good funds think they can be the ones who pick the 85, or the most normal default cycles pick the 90 each year that don't go into default. And Glenn, that's a good point. What are we thinking in terms of a default rate? For high yield this year, I don't want to front run Kai too much, but you know we're talking we're below the consensus. We're we're in the uh, you know the high single digits, but you know closer closer to seven okay. than ten. The pace that we to see the headlines scroll across, it certainly seems like it's picking up, especially in the retail space. Um, you know, it's it's all the brands we grew up with: J.C. J Crew, um, different points in my childhood are are filing for bankruptcy. Uh, yeah, the issue around default rates is some industries are just going to prove to be an absolute slaughterhouse in terms of default rates. But in the aggregate, uh, you have some, you know, some of the largest cap. So not this valuational content is by dead weighted, and uh, it, it isn't going to be a particularly severe default cycle yet. That would take something a lot more severe. One of the beauties of this cycle, and we saw it back in Jan and Feb, and actually later in 19, you had, you know, it's a par plus market. You had rallying risk assets with curve coming down. You know, it's it's been a very strange cycle. So you had all these par plus bonds that could refinance and extend, and they did. So the lack of maturity is a good place to begin. And also a lot of them took a lot of that, made the effort and was smart enough to get ahead of the curve and, and extend their revolvers and their term loans. So you have clean maturities are, you know, kind of the reward in and of themselves. Because in order to have a serious crisis, you have to bleed cash badly when you have no maturities. And when you have covenant light, you, you don't really get the guys ringing the door regularly to force a seat at the table to restructure your 
your pricing and, and, and their protection. So it's a, it, it makes for a low default risk market. That's the, that's the asterisk though. Many companies right now are hemorrhaging cash. So it's not like you need to lower leverage because leverage is going higher no matter how you look at it because of the denominator and on a total basis because of the numerator. But you need to plug that hole. And the companies that can't plug that hole um, are going to fall in hard times, see coercive restructurings and defaults, but many can because your leverage comes out weaker on the other side. That's why you can challenge some of these V-shaped scenarios because on the other side of the V, you're, you're going to have weaker leverage and it's only going to be a gradual rebound in earnings because there's a lot of other structural factors to talk about. But just of being able to avoid default, like an oil company in Canada that ha could get a line of credit from the EDC, that by itself is a tiebreaker against, say, a shale company that can't even fund its CapEx and is hemorrhaging right now and probably a lot of the industry would just see it go away anyway to cut production and get prices back up. You know, the you know, survival of the fittest mentality around sh the shale sector. There's a lot of that type of analysis that can go on. Avis can get a secure deal, Hertz can't. Um, if we have a double dip, there'll be an all new game to, to, to play for travel and leisure because yeah. then you're talking about that much more cash needed and the windows will be closing for a lot of issuers. One thing um, I've been paying attention to in IG and is, you know, I think a, a lot of the reason we're seeing so much supply right now is uh, markets are open, first and foremost. The yields are low and coupons are, are low, so it's cheap for investors. We're still just off the all-time lows in terms of yield. And also, first quarter earnings weren't that bad. We kind of saw a push on top-line growth. The earnings were down, but I think that was largely expected. I think we actually trended slightly positive on the surprise, um, the surprise ratio. But I think second quarter earnings are going to be a disaster. And do you think investors have priced in just how bad numbers can get? Or do you think we're in for another push wider in spreads? Well, they haven't, they haven't priced in to Q20 going into 3Q20. Uh, but a lot of them are trying to handicap that. That's, you know, that's the whole game. The market's forward-looking. The equity markets are forward-looking. Uh, the old punchline is except when they're not um, because they're just looking at the wrong direction. Uh, so, you know, the forward-looking issue for high yield is it's the, it's the clock on COVID. People think this will resolve and people don't have maturities. They are issues not have maturities. You have credit available for many of these issues. You can see a lot of the triple Bs become double Bs, but, you know, no one's going to die from that. It will underperform. The triple Bs and double Bs both potentially, except you got Bs and triple Cs making them look good because in a, in a in a period where that many triple Bs go to double B, you can bet that the triple Cs are feeling it worse, and they always do, and, and the weaker part of single B. So you'll see a broader spread decompression. But yeah, people are trying. Uh, I don't think it's priced in. If you look at the uh, quality spreads, which just shows high yield versus high grade quality spreads, where you're getting priced in right now is well below prior cyclical downturns. So if 2Q20 does mark the economic low and the, and the, and the quarterly earnings low and the quarterly cash bleed high, then you're not getting paid for it. Um, but that that means you're building in a nice snapback, uh, not necessarily in all industries because a lot of businesses are seasonal, but in the second half. But the, the number right now on that number is 540. That looks more like what you saw in the uh, fall of 98 when the rally started uh, after that for a little bit, after the you know, long term and some Lehman scares and post Russia default. But look at the other ones, TMT peak 850. Forget the credit crisis, that's off the charts. This cycle, we've had several with six handles. So quality spreads, your compensation for stepping down the credit spectrum and risk is really, it's, it's well above the median as it should be, but it's well below prior credit cycle downturn. So 
uh, that means there's a lot of optimism built into that number. And yeah. you know, but the if other I big think number, about it, I was yeah. just going to say, you know, if I think about some of the things we're hearing, so schools question mark for September, um, and then as I talk to more, you know, friends and, and clients who work in New York, their companies are saying, you know, we might not be back in the office this year in all of 2020. Um, that's just not in New York. I'm hearing some of that on the West Coast as well. So for me, it's like getting back to normal, I think, is a long way off. Well, we've been underperforming high yields since the beginning of the year, but, you know, we thought it was going to be a nuance and finesse game on underperform. Uh, instead, it turned into, you know, just, you know, full-blown full COVID crisis. And, you know, we're still underperformed because we just see the, the bottom continuing to erode, more migration down and out, uh, more triple Bs coming down. So we are... We've been a proponent for the last two years, really, of the higher light strategy. We still like the double B tier. And when they get weak, like, you know, you saw things like, you know, stellar companies like United Rentals get knocked down, you know, into the mid-80s. You know, that's, that's, if you find bonds, you're supposed to buy those. The opportunities pop up, so it becomes an issuer by issuer uh, search. Uh, I think it's an issuer-level battle, really, as much as you want to try to handicap COVID. That's like last swing moonbeams at this point. You know, trying to do that is hard, but you you got to know who the big losers will will be. If you're wrong on that, a lot of companies will still be able to borrow, and a lot will just be heading towards bankruptcy, debt restructuring, and we could even see some liquidations along the way. I mean, this you know that's the that's the scenario where you start seeing a lot of planes parked. That's where you start seeing some of these service companies that are asset light run out of real estate on their ability to uh, right. to borrow at all. Uh, and to the extent that it's available as an option, our coercive exchanges will kick in, or they'll just say, let's beat the rush, preserve a state value, and head to the courtroom. Uh, we'll see if we can get a docket because they're probably shut down on COVID also at that point. So, so it's going to be. Seen, uh, I was going to say, so we've liked um, the kind of the triple B, the double B trade area for a while. And something I've been talking to clients about is, you know, I think that that's going to be an emerging bucket, you're going to see a lot of investors who are just crossover players because that universe is growing and morphing lines. Um, are you seeing that shift within the high yield investors just yet that the traditional high yield players are, are swapping out of some of the smaller high yield names and into fallen angels? It, guys are definitely searching. I think we, we've had, well, you know, the trouble's on when we've had more dialogue with distressed debt investors than, than we have since the crisis. So yeah, there's that. But there's also just there's some all new features to this because the, the great triple B story is, you know, you have written on that a lot in the past, so have I, about whether that will swamp high yield. And we're not a believer in the triple B as a crisis. Uh, at the end of the day, fundamentals are a crisis, so systemic threats, and it hurts the bottom worse than the middle every time. Um, and that, that's a lot of people have come around to that's not the end of the world, but it's creating these new pockets of total return opportunity, for example, in long dated downgraded IG securities that just completely fall out of bed because that's not a natural buyer base in, in IO, but it's almost like a quasi equity play because of the capital appreciation upside. But they'll go from 120 to 70 uh, in a low curve environment. So if, if, if you start to see more stepping in to buy those and they're more logical target for a high yield buyer and pensions uh, that, because you get to lock in, uh, if, especially if it's an above market coupon, which a lot of them are because they were high grade companies with make hold protection. There's a lot of those, they bounce around, but it's, it's kind of like buying a, a stock uh, where the dividend has to get paid. And if you believe it's, it's not gonna go bankrupt and has access to borrowing, it will make it through the COVID crunch. I mean, and these right. things have really moved around. I mean, we're talking major league swings, 50 down, 
30 up and still well below the highs. And that's a, that's where the you still got to trade off excess return versus duration. And usually that's not the typical high yield play. But there are other pockets of money out there that have really compelling needs for both cash flow and yield and return. And that you know has pensions written all over it. Right. So we've talked about how we think leverage is going to be elevated. Companies aren't out of the woods yet. What else is on our worry list? I know we've talked about percolating China trade risk. I know we haven't talked about China and trade in a while. We still have tariffs in place. Um, but what are your thoughts on what's going on with China? Yeah, I, I get a lot of the China trade stuff and people who have been regular readers on the site, so we always look at that. And um, I, I thought it had kind of gone away for a while. Uh, you know, Autos 232 kind of died in, in its sleep unless someone revives it. Uh, but the China trade piece is now becoming a political issue around COVID um, and supplier chains. I spent a lot of my career studying autos and lean manufacturing practices and everyone embracing you know, the Toyota production systems, all this stuff. And it takes decades to build and it can take you know, a relatively you know, shorter number of, of quarters to, to destroy or undermine. So we end up with broken chains uh, that, that disrupts production if a recovery that slows the recovery or alternatively higher costs due to tariffs, which squeezes margins, which are already negative, uh, you know, and need to come back. Uh, so if you, to the extent that you slow volumes in a fixed cost industry, you create problems for break-even levels and just one big math problem after another. But at the end of the day, it just means uh, you're damaging the manufacturing sectors. But that lean leaning of, of the supply chain thing is extended throughout all industries to services, uh, and so on. And that's how credit cards are even born. We're part of a supplier chain you know, utilization rate for asset managers who want to keep their costs in check. So it's everywhere. And the more you disrupt that, uh, the worse it'll be for the recovery. And you know, China is a big issue we can talk about endlessly, but there's that one. But the other one is we've never seen a consumer sector like this before. I grew up in the, uh, you know, the, the stagflationary high unemployment 70s. So you know, it was a pretty grim economic backdrop where all assets had negative returns by the end of the decade. And, and you know, you look at you look at what's going on now, and there's been nothing close to this. My parents were born in '32, so you know, I heard depression stories, uh, you know, and from grandparents and great aunts and uncles heard Spanish flu stories. So, uh, you know, this this you got to go back, you got to dial it way back to find anything close. And that was before the capital markets was born. I mean, that was kind of the market where Glass Steagall was born. So, you know, there are all these things going on right now that are impressive. I mean, you have 36 million, you know, initial claims over eight weeks. How does that flow into mortgages, credit card bills, FICO scores, ability to recover? And let's just say they do recover. You know, there's a party in Wisconsin, you know, you know, drinks, drinks on the house. But then you got to sit there and go, okay, what if there's a double dip? How much money do I really want to spend? I'll celebrate the, uh, I'll celebrate the moment. But in terms of really getting out and spending a lot of money, when we could see a fresh dose of it, that's going to have to weigh on some subset of the consumers. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the uh, the dilemma here. How will consumer behavior be shifted? Same for co for corporations. So you put consumer spending, which is the be all and end all of GDP lines in the crosshairs, based on spending habits. You you slow down inventory restocking. That's another you know another key part of what goes on. There's the supplier chain, and then for corporations, if you have shelved the capex plan, you're going to leave it on the shelf uh, until you you're 100% sure where we are, which pushes the recovery back into at best you know second half. You know, when you're coming off a, a, a tragedy like 2Q20 will be, you know, the numbers look okay, but it's the absolute run rates that really matter for a lot of industries in order to rehire, restock, and invest. Yeah, not not a good picture. And I think I think IG still has enough demand back, 
features to it um, where investors are going to the least risky part of all the risk assets. But equities is one where I scratch my head where, you know, the NASDAQ's positive for the year, S&Ps, it's, you know, it's off a little bit um, this week, but there's just so much optimism built in the markets. Maybe it's the credit analyst in me that's a little more skeptical, but there's, there's still bad stuff to come, I think. Give me a question too on that equities piece. Um, I guess someone had sent in a question saying, you know, you have- um, Yeah, a I can read it. What is it? I don't have it in front uh, of me. The question was, um, there are 25 companies in the S&P 500 that have negative balance sheet equity. What does this mean to the fundamentals and financials and the position of the bondholders in these companies when there is no longer an equity cushion? Yeah, well, you know, there's book equity um, and there's cash flow. Um, book equity is, is historically a lot of equity guys, uh, you know, live and die by, by book equity, but no one ever wrote a check out of book equity. You write out of cash flow and your ability to service your debt, that's, how, that's what keeps you going. So it, it usually it, it intrinsically means there has been a lot of trouble on the credit front because you've either bought back too much stock, taken massive write-offs, but um, you know having negative equity is is probably you know pretty far down on my list of what I would look at for for framing risk. But uh, you know a first cousin of that is when you have uh, collapsing EBITDA and rising total debt plus rising net debt. You know so if you draw it on your bank lines, it's net debt neutral until you start spending the cash. So you. And the regulators also look a lot at the, at the total debt to EBITDA number uh, and you know what type of free cash flow availability they have after they're you know they're pretty much you know hard set uh, capex or dividend payouts. Then you look at it and you go, oh, okay, um, this is this is trouble because I'm eight times levered, or I'm dividing by a negative number in EBITDA, and uh, my expected multiples for this particular industry and issue might be six times. So that's when people start saying, well, that's not an economically viable business model. You need to restructure your debt. Um, but I've seen a lot of companies you know, go for years. I covered a company once that didn't earn its dividend for nine years. And that's that's a very American thing on the high grade side, which is more S&P like. When you start getting down to the mid caps and small caps, uh, which has bigger overlap with you know riskier credit, that's when you start to see more restructuring. Like, like Lear, when they filed, they were a very good company, great company. But I got to the point with with a, a balance sheet that they had back in the last crisis, their all their customers were major customers were shrinking dramatically. They were just over levered for the end market at that point. So they said, let's do a very clean orderly restructuring. We're a good company with a viable model, and they emerged. They equitized uh, the unsecured, wiped out the shareholders. You know, you're going to see probably a lot more of that, and that's where these giant pools of capital that have been forming are, are ready to rock. They want to put money in as some of these companies restructure their balance sheets and emerge. Uh, to ride the next cycle, and you know, it, I think you don't hear much about them now because it's early. The companies aren't yeah. really capitulating yet, and they're not folding yet. They're going to try as many as possible to get every last dime they can. You know, they're going to put a, you know a third lien on the captain's bridge until they can make it. So it's going to be one thing. It's going to be a lot going on. One thing I've been watching in the IG space is. On the back of first quarter earnings, we didn't see many companies cut the dividend. I think Western Digital's you know, new CEO came in and said, that's it on the dividend. But other than that, I mean, what we're seeing companies do in high grade is postpone share buybacks or pause those, but we're not seeing much change to dividends. For me, I think you're gonna see and ramp up in those announcements in the second quarter. I think it's interesting that they companies generally pulled guidance for the rest of the year, but they're committing to the dividend. I just think cash flow is going to be a little bit more stressed than people are expecting. 
Um, so that's the next thing I, I think investors should pay attention to is which companies should be cutting dividend. And I have to imagine if the rating agencies are giving credits leeway, you know, I know our utilities analysts said that uh, the agencies have said they'll, they'll give them two to three years to get back to normal leverage numbers. Um, you know, they're going to be asking for some concessions on that. If your leverage is elevated, you need to preserve your cash in the ways <clears> you can. But Glenn, I know you have a differing view on that. Historically, they tend to pay their dividends. And a lot of people would construe cutting a dividend as a sign of weakness. In, in the old days, you know, in Europe, for example, you would just cut your dividends to zero. If you weren't making it, you cut it. Uh, it's instinctive, and then, but it's part of a smoothing of, across the cycle. Uh, so a lot of guys don't earn their dividends at different points of the cycle. They would stop increasing, and they might cut them. And it comes down to what the board thinks is prudent. But you know, they will wrestle internally with. If you're a triple B and you cut your dividend, um, you know that's that's a good thing uh, optically, but it can also shape perception. That that's a sign of weakness and a lack of optimism. So that's where you get out of credit analysis. You know. And, you get into cycle analysis, and it's 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 a tough call for a lot of companies. But you know, if you're an old company and you starve for cash and you get downgraded from high grade to high yield, uh, it makes I think that's something where most people are just fixating on the price of oil or gas, and you can get away with cutting the dividend to zero. The banks don't necessarily insist. We've you know, if you got knocked down the high yield back in prior prior um, periods of of this history of high yield, the banks wouldn't let you pay. But now the banks, you know. Right. You know, it's like it's like a you know it's like a Soviet soup line uh, to try to get your business. So you know they're not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. Right. So, so yeah, Glenn, we're, we're going to end. Sorry, we're going to end up with with a, a dividend cuts, but I'd say the majority don't. Um, question for you, Glenn, that, that came in. Do you expect default recoveries to decline well below the last recession level? I would think so, um, because you know it's it could be uh, you know a, a very stressed set of conditions that get you there, and the ones that usually are most vulnerable are ones that are more, not only wholly encumbered, but need their secular pressures that call for downsizing retail. They lack a, a deep asset base and uh, you know an uncertain outlook ahead like travel and leisure. So it, it, aircraft is one thing, but the service components of the, 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 we've never had a services broad sector be this big before and it's very, very fragmented, but you gotta go in and look at them. Some of them are very asset intensive and highly flexible like a United Rentals. But then you got like the car rentals, which are purely asset light service companies on the on the issuing entities. But overall, you don't have any claim to the, the heavy asset base only indirectly over on the vehicle side, which is the vehicle funding structures. So you can go look at them and say, this is asset light. And if the business model is not working and they, and they have a big bleed because of a price times volume crisis, your recoveries are going to be pretty damn low uh, for, for hard hardcore capital intensive companies that get beaten up in the downturn. We have plenty of histories there to look at, and those will be similar to the past probably. And some of them might even emerge very quickly because it's a temporary shock uh, and they just have to realign to meet what could be for, you know, next couple of years, a, a smaller base of demand. So, you know, it's really going to be case by case, but I, I would think they're going to be lower because on the way to getting there, they've probably laid in as much as is humanly possible. I'm talking about right. unsecured recoveries. All right. Related question that came in. Um, are there any IG names, possibly low triple B, that you are concerned about from a default perspective? Um, Glenn, I know you and I talked about this. The ones that jump out to us, I mean, we jokingly said you know, some of the big names that are in the headlines, um, like a G or a Boeing, but that's that's not our view, that's half in jest. 
Um, but then otherwise, it's it's the sectors that suddenly are hit with this shock. It's the, um, the leisure, the cruise lines are the ones, I think, where they're just suddenly whacked and they don't have a lot of prospects for recovering the business in the near term. But Glenn, what are your thoughts on that question? Well, we've had them before. Um, you know, we've had triple Vs that were either misrated, you know, whether it be in telecom or whether it be in power. We've had some shocks in the past and we had some closed calls. The problem is it, you start to get into also with high grade companies that are under severe stress, you get into kind of a maturity Russian roulette because the, all the high yield guys cleaned up the maturities because they had, they had they were callable and market was booming, curve was low. Uh, so in a way it's it's almost gonna be a function of how crowded your maturity schedule is in 2020 and 21 uh, and how this second wave plays out. But like you said, you, you, you flagged them, it's the travel and leisure and, and you know what's left of retail uh, or they're, they're plunging straight down through. You, you know, if you're double B, you could be triple C, you know, in no time. I mean, a collapse of revenue like this is unprecedented. The numbers are just enormous. Uh, everyone, it's usually somewhat of a, of, a, of a slow and steady secular erosion, unless you do a bad merger and something goes terribly wrong, you know, because of a leveraged buyout or something uh, in, in sectors like retail, but it doesn't happen overnight. This happened in, in a matter of weeks and it doesn't look like it's gonna be getting any better until the third quarter. Uh, and you're not always in sync with the seasonal prep. So you may, if, the, if there's demand in later in the year, you may not be set up to, to fill that demand because of supply chain problems or because you couldn't get trade credit. I'm talking about across entire industries, you're also gonna have more supplier chain stress that can disrupt your ability to ramp back up. That's more like the parallel to the autos in the downturn you had. If you had one supplier blow up and was a key part of the chain, it could disrupt the whole chain itself. Um, so they always try to have multiple suppliers. But I, you know, right. for triple B's, I still think financial services are the ones where if you ever have a frequent need to refi and you need to do it on an unsecured basis and you need to have support from the banks uh, on an unsecured basis plus support from bondholders, that's where your liability structure and you need to issue frequently can be a major problem. So that's something for you know Jesse and those guys. And it's more going to be off the run consumer commercial finance. It's less going to be about the, you know the banks this time. Banks are in good shape for now. Right. All right. One last question, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, that came in. So quantitative easing following the uh, great financial crisis didn't seem to bring out any meaningful forms of inflation outside of asset price potentially. What are your thoughts on the potential for inflation following pandemic-related accommodation? And the impacts on credit markets in the short and medium term. You know, I was. <laughs> this came up before. It's a mouthful, yeah, I know. But I, you know, the, the, you know, if, if you put gold bugs top of the crazy list uh, and put currency, the fanatic second, you know, bond hawks are probably third in terms of just, you know, they see inflation under their bed every day. Uh, so, you know, that that's that debate is coming back in vogue. You know, especially recently with more Fed guys who are pure monetarists, you know, running running up the flag. But if you don't have pricing power in labor, which you sure as heck don't have, and you won't for any time near term, and if you don't have, you know, a critical shortages of commodities that can flow through into cost structures, uh, you know, whether it be you know food or, or oil, it's it's really hard to come up with an inflationary scenario because you know the it's the gallon of milk rule. You know, when oil goes up, milk goes up. When there's shortages in the farm belt, you know, like we, we had a lot of food inflation and labor inflation in the 70s and they had COLA provisions and highly unionized industries. So they had the wage price spiral upward. Uh, we don't have anything that looks anything like that. If we had a collapse of the dollar, um, that would be kind of, a, you know, somebody spin that scenario. So as a, as, as a country with a, a big trade deficit, 
the you know the cost you know the cost of, of imports will go up but that by then you know inflation for that to happen the dollar collapse we got bigger problems and it's certainly not going to be demand driven and pricing power won't be there in commodities and pricing power won't be there on supply and demand and won't be there on labor on collective bargaining or otherwise about you know about six percent of the private sector is unionized so there's not a lot for the hotel uh, guys to do but they at least have a powerful union but when you start getting into this long tail of um, you know, the, the hosp a lot of the hospitality, uh, hospitality and leisure industry groups, like food services and others that have been hit, they have some of the lowest unionization rates out there. So it's really hard for them to push uh, push wages unless the local, you know, New York, San Francisco and others move the minimum wage needle by, by legislative fiat. Thanks. Okay. So thanks, um, Glenn. I just wanted to wrap up on what to watch um, in the week ahead. So I think the China trade and the China news is something to pay attention to. We've seen that start to escalate, and I think there's going to be more noise around that. Um, again, it's the COVID cases as well. How are how's reopening going? Are we seeing increasing in infections of the areas that have reopened? And then also in IG in particular, it's supply. It's do the issuers continue to hit the primary? My vote is yes. I think they're going to continue to come and, and try to price debt ahead of those 2Q numbers. Uh, question is, how are investors going to handle it? And then also rates. I know we came down a little bit, but we have seen a steepening of the Treasury curve that has wiped out a lot of the returns in IG for the year. So that's something else that we're keeping an eye on for the week ahead. I hope you enjoyed the excerpt from our weekly wrap. Please stay tuned for future episodes of our podcast. As always, you can find our research at our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.